Thanks, Zach. And good morning, everyone here at church and watching online. Um, I also want to extend a special welcome to those of you who are here for the first time or just visiting with us. We are super glad that you're here. My name is Andrea, and I am a member here at Resurrection City Church, and I also serve on the worship team and as a community group leader. Um, I'm not a pastor, and I'm not normally up here speaking, but Joel and Julie have invited me to preach this morning as a part of my partnership with the church and in preparation to serve God uh, full-time in cross-cultural ministry with Converge International Ministries. I'll tell you more about myself and kind of the journey that I'm on to get there throughout the sermon this morning, but before I go any further, I'd like to open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the mighty works you have done from the first days of creation up till now. We thank you that you are not bound by space or time in the ways that you act and save, and that you are weaving a story of grace and reconciliation for all people to find their way back to you. Please be with us in this congregation today and be with me as I share from your word with my church family. Lord, I pray that wisdom and truth would be made known among the nations through the words and deeds of the people of Resurrection City and that we will bring you the glory and honor you are due. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so a bit more about me. I've been coming to Resurrection City since about uh, 2019, and I first joined Resurrection City because I was really looking to be a part of a local church plant. Prior to coming here, I served in Southeast Asia as an English teacher for four years, and you can see in the picture some of my former students. Um, and it was a blast, and I loved living there, and I loved working there. Um, but it did teach me I don't actually want to be a teacher for the rest of my life. Um, I just, I don't know, I don't really care about grammar that much. Um, but I do really care about cross-cultural ministry and um, helping people who don't currently have access to the gospel find access to it. And so when I came back to the United States and I moved to the Minnesota, I was looking for a church plant that could help me to understand how to do this in my own cultural context before I moved back overseas to do it again in a new culture. And I love being a part of Resurrection City specifically at this time in the toddler years, as Joel has called it before, because it's a really exciting opportunity to help the church and be a part of the decision making to understand what are our next steps as a church body to live out our mission statement to see not only this city, but the world made new through Jesus, our Savior and King. So in addition to all of that background, I have been working with perspectives on the world Christian movement in the Twin Cities also since about 2019. If you're not familiar with Perspectives, it's a 16-week discipleship course that has a vision to bring um, a global dimension of God accomplishing his purposes to every believer in their day-to-day -day discipleship. So I took it as a student for the first time in 2019, and then I joined the coordinating committee, and I've actually been an instructor of the course for the past two years, and largely my sermon today comes from the lesson that I teach in week four called uh, A Mandate for the Nations. Full disclosure, I usually get 100 minutes to teach that lesson, um, but I promise not to keep you here that long. We'll get out in time for lunch and to enjoy the nice weather. So I say all of this not only to uh, establish some credibility for myself as to why I'm here speaking today on the Great Commission as an invitation for all, but also to give you just a glimpse into my story and to ask you to praise God with me for the ways that he has continually thrown doors open on my journey to full-time cross-cultural ministry. By the grace of God, I've recently been appointed to be a global worker with Converge International Ministries on an initiative in Southeast Asia to start and strengthen churches among an unreached people group. While I'm still here stateside, though, I'm working on training and equipping myself in new ministry skills like preaching and teaching, and also working on raising up a ministry partnership team. And so I'm so honored that Julie came to Perspectives this year and heard me teach and asked me to come and share about the Great Commission with you all, and I'm excited to dig into it together 
this morning. Um, I'll go ahead and give you, spoiler alert, what I'm going to talk about and the big idea for today is that the Great Commission is an invitation for all Christians to know the heart of God for his people and to live in response for his glory. I'm not sure what comes to mind for you when I say the word missions or missionary. Just to make sure we're all on the same page, when I say missionary, I'm talking about someone who has intentionally crossed cultural boundaries with the aim of sharing the good news about Jesus Christ with people who don't yet consider themselves Christians and don't really have access to the gospel. So perhaps you think of some um, heroes of our faith, like Hudson Taylor, who started the China Inland Mission in the 1800s, or Mother Teresa, who served the poor in India in the 1950s and 60s. Or maybe the image of missionaries for you is a little bit more complicated and cringe-inducing because of the affiliation of white supremacy and white saviorism that is rightfully a stain on church and missions history. When I'm talking about white saviorism and missions, it happens when missionaries go with a framework of missions that is both power-hungry for themselves and deficit-minded of the people that they came to serve. And you go in with this idea as bearers of the gospel message that you're somehow superior to the people that you're aiming to serve. Um, this photo is from an Instagram account called at Barbie Savior, and it's full of countless images of missionary Barbie doing such wonderful things like taking selfies with children in orphanages and maybe planting a tree sometimes, and of course documenting it all for her gram. Um, I'm not here to, to, not, to deny the impact of white supremacy and the role that it's had to play in missions both in the past and now. Um, it happens, and I acknowledge and lament it, because it is so far away from what the actual purpose of missions that God gave us is. But the good news is, we have a much better example to follow than missionary Barbie. Whatever image comes to mind for you when you hear the word missions or missionary, I hope that from now on you can imagine God himself, because God is a missionary God. If you're not sure what I mean, we're going to take a tour through um, a number of passages in Scripture, all the way starting from Genesis and the beginning of Bible through to Revelations, to see what God has to say about himself and to catch a glimpse of his heart for the nations. So we'll start in Genesis 12. God is making a covenant here with Abraham. Abraham was a faithful and obedient servant, and he, when God called him to go, he went where and when God told him. And as a result, God promises, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then we'll fast forward a little bit. The great nation that God promised became the nation of Israel. And in the book of Daniel, we find the Israelites actually in captivity in the ancient kingdom of Babylon. And in Daniel 6, um, Daniel is an Israelite, and he has found himself in some hot water because he refused to obey a decree to stop praying to God and instead pray to the king. He didn't want to do that, and so they throw him into a lion's den. But God miraculously spares his life, and in response, King Darius is so amazed, he tells his whole kingdom, to all the nations and people of every language and all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed and his dominion will never end. And then we go into the Psalms, uh, the prayer book for the people of Israel. Psalm 67 specifically was written to be a psalm of thanksgiving and remembrance for the people of Israel to remember all that God has done for them. And if you've been attending Rest City for a while, you might recognize Psalm 67 verses 1 through 2 
uh, it's pretty similar to a benediction that we often hear at the end of service that comes from Numbers. And you're right, the psalmist is drawing from that same text when he's writing here. But in Psalm 67, he uniquely identifies that when he's asking God to bless the people of Israel and to make his face shine upon them, it's so that the message of God's goodness and God's salvation would be declared widely. And so he writes, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Finally, on our tour of scripture, we get to the New Testament. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus is talking to his disciples and trying to explain what's about to happen and, and more fully explain his purpose in doing so. And he said, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And in our final stop on this tour through the Bible, we come to the end of the book in Revelation. It's the Apostle John's vision of heaven, and he describes a really beautiful picture of what it's going to look like for us. He says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Did you pick up on any themes in the verses that I showed you? All peoples, people of every language and all the earth, all nations, every nation, tribe, people, and language. Repeatedly, again and again, God's concern is that through any circumstance, be it through covenant, community, captivity, or even capital punishment, the peoples of earth would know his great love and his great power to save. Our God is a missionary God. And so when we look at the Great Commission through this lens, with God as our greatest missionary example, we have greater depth and clarity to understand what Jesus is inviting us into, and we are given the greatest motivation to respond with joyful obedience. So I've been talking about the Great Commission for a while now this morning, and now we're actually going to get into it. Uh, the Great Commission is actually a description of a number of passages. It's found, uh, versions of it are recorded in all four Gospels and even into the book of Acts. In each of these circumstances, the Great Commission is one of the last recorded conversations that Jesus has with his disciples during his earthly ministry. It comes after the great crescendo in the story of the crucifixion and resurrection. And he's gathering together with his disciples and he's giving them the action plan for what's next. Because he knows that his time remaining on earth now is really short and there's too much momentum to be had after this great miracle of resurrection from the dead, and he's got to keep it moving. The Great Commission in the Gospel of Matthew is probably the most well-known of the four Gospel versions, and so that's the one we're going to look at today. And it comes in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Um, okay, so a little bit of a grammar nerd alert. I know I said I wasn't passionate about ESL teaching, but you don't just kind of take off that hat. It's kind of like riding a bicycle, you always learn it. But the main call to action in, uh, in the Great Commission that Jesus actually wants his followers to do is not actually go, even though that verb comes first in the sentence. And in English, word order is really important, but in other languages, not so much. So the main verb in this phrase is actually make, and you can connect it together with the direct object, make disciples. 
And this is what the Great Commission invites us to do in response to God's heart for the nations, to make disciples. In this version that's recorded in the book of Matthew, there are four sections that highlight this concept of all or everything. And so we're going to look at those four to understand what exactly Jesus is saying to his disciples in this moment and to us now in his parting words. So the first one is all authority. Jesus claims that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And this is no small claim. In fact, if anyone else aside from Jesus were to ever then or now make this claim, I would strongly advise you to run away from that person. But the life and death and resurrection of Jesus stand as proof that this is true. And Jesus himself claims that this authority he's talking about has been given to him from God. It's not something he's claiming that he did for himself. And look at what he does with that authority. He doesn't use it to get revenge and wipe out his enemies who just humiliated him on the cross. He doesn't use it to hoard riches for himself or to oppress those who are now under his rule. He uses this authority to instruct his followers to go out into the world and tell others about him. And Julie mentioned this in a sermon last fall, but it's not like Jesus is a politician commissioning his disciples to go out and campaign for him. Their mission here is not to say, hey, guys, you've heard about Jesus. He's like the son of a carpenter, but he also makes really good wine and he saves people and he just died but then came back to life yeah, yeah, he wants to be king, so please vote for him. No, Jesus is already the king. He doesn't need us to vote for him or to give him the power, but he already has it. And he's not just king of the Jews, which is what the sign on the cross that hung above him said, but he's the king of all peoples. And in this great commission, he's telling us that he wants all peoples to know that he is king. And it's not so, again, so that he can benefit because he already has the benefits. He has the authority from God. But he does this so that the peoples of earth can benefit from knowing him and trusting in his perfect reign. The next all statement is all nations. All nations comes from the Greek phrase panta ta ethne. And I won't claim to be a, a biblical Greek scholar, but I do know that this phrase translates into all the peoples. And when we use this phrase to understand the Great Commission, it totally transforms how we look at the world and the task at hand. Pantata ethne, all the peoples. You can hear the etymology of some of our English words from the Greek ethnos, which is singular, and ethne, which is plural. So in English, we have ethnicity and ethnic. So we are to make disciples of pantata ethne. What does that mean? It means that we're not trying to understand the world or the task of sharing the gospel with unreached peoples in the terms of geopolitical borders if for no other reason than the current geopolitical borders that we have and the concept of a nation state didn't exist when Jesus was giving this great commission to his disciples 2,000 years ago. Instead, we look at the world in terms of people groups or ethne. The Joshua Project, which is a research initiative that seeks to identify the ethnic people groups of the world that have the fewest followers of Jesus, estimates that there are 17,432 people groups in the world today and that 7,416 of them are unreached. That means that 42.5% of the world's people groups have no indigenous community of Christians with adequate numbers and resources to further evangelize that group without outside assistance. And this is why the Great Commission still applies to us today. The third all statement or all concept is this idea of everything or all that I have commanded. Making converts is not the same thing as making disciples. 
And Jesus did not ask us to make converts. So he's not asking us to go out and educate people about Jesus and collect massive amounts of declarations of faith that ultimately bear no fruit. Jesus promises that the life of a disciple will be difficult, and so we need people who are going to profess faith in Jesus to have a deep understanding of the cost of following him and what that actually means. And the best way to do that is to do it in relationship with them. If we look at Jesus' ministry, it was entirely relationship-centered. Jesus ate food with his disciples. He served them and washed his feet. They traveled together. He taught them. He laughed with them. He prayed for them. He did rebuke and teach them, but most of all, he loved them. And this is what Jesus is asking us to do with the Great Commission. When we make disciples of all nations, he's not asking us to do something he wasn't willing to do himself, and he's not asking us to do it halfway. And the final all statement is always. For I, am, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. I love that Matthew closes his gospel with this line because it actually bookends something that he writes in the beginning in chapter 1. In chapter 1, the angel Gabriel comes to Joseph to tell him that his fiancée Mary's son will fulfill an ancient prophecy that the Jewish Messiah would be called Emmanuel, which translates to God with us. And Jesus brings this prophecy in perfect wholeness when toward the end of his ministry on earth, as he's gathering with near with those who know him best and love him dearest, he promises them, Emmanuel, God with us until the end until the mission is complete. What better encouragement is there than this? The one who commissions us to do it also promises to be with us through it. And this promise is not exclusive to the first 11 who heard it. It's intended for us too. How can we believe that that's true? Jesus said so in his prayer for his disciples that we find in John 17. I wish I had time to read this whole chapter with you today. This is why I take 100 minutes in my regular class. Um, we don't have time to read the whole thing, but I highly encourage you to go and read this chapter on your own time sometime this week because it's really beautiful and powerful to see the prayer that Jesus was giving. But for now, you can just take my word for it. What we see in this intimate prayer from Jesus is that he was sent with a clear purpose, and he's reflecting on this purpose and the work that he was sent to accomplish and had already accomplished. And he acknowledges that the work he was given to do was centered around the ones given to him by the Father. He taught them. He revealed the word of truth to them. He demonstrated the love of God to them. And in this prayer, he is now requesting that God would grant his disciples the same oneness and glory and the same oneness and purpose for them as God originally granted to Jesus himself. Today, we are going to zoom in on verses 20 and 21 of this prayer because Jesus says specifically that he's not just praying for the current disciples but also for ones who will believe in him because of their words and actions. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that they may be one and the world may believe that you have sent me. That means when he was praying that prayer, he was praying about you and me. And I don't know about you, but that's pretty wild to me, that we get to be a part of this missional movement that was started 2,000 years ago, and Jesus is asking us to still be a part of it now. It's a really loving commission, and he does it because he really cares about people. I know a lot of people in the world, especially outside of the church, might disagree with me 
And there are some, some common worldviews that are used to push back against this idea of missions or evangelism in general. Um, and people might say, why would you go in and disturb these cultures? Um, they've already got their own religious systems and they're, it's working for them just fine. Like, what are you doing? Kind of trying to avoid some of that white saviorism. And so I wanted to touch on some of those common claims that can be used to push back against the Great Commission um, and just talk about them. The two worldviews I want to focus on are pluralism and universalism. These aren't new, they've been around for a long time, but it seems like more and more today they're becoming pretty mainstream views in society. More than mere tolerance, religious pluralism accepts that there are multiple paths to God and that they're all valid. And universalism is kind of similar, but it's the belief that everyone will be saved and that all people will end up in heaven. Uh, Reverend John Lowe is another perspectives instructor, and he taught uh, a similar version of the lesson that I usually teach. And at this part, he made a joke that I think is really funny. He says, in some superficial instances, pluralism as an idea, that there's more than one right way to do something, can be pretty cool. And he calls it pasta pluralism. So think about it. What's the best way to eat noodles? Is there really one right answer? I think no. Spaghetti? Yeah. Mac and cheese? Yeah. Ramen? Yeah. Pad Thai? Yeah. I think pasta pluralism is awesome. But when it comes to truth, the claims of Christianity don't leave any room for pluralism. One question that religions all try to answer is, what's wrong with humanity and what can be done about it? Christianity's answer to this question is that humans are sinful and broken and we can't fix ourselves. But it doesn't just leave us with that depressing reality. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I recognize that this is a bold and very exclusive claim, um, and it can be kind of hard to sit with. But I contend to you today that the uniqueness of Jesus supports the claim of exclusivity that makes the Great Commission necessary. If we believe this is true, then there isn't room for pluralist thought that says many paths up the mountain all lead to the peak. If that's true, if any religion could get you to heaven, then why did Jesus have to suffer such a horrendous death on the cross? There's no room for universalist thought that says we'll all end up in heaven regardless of our choices. If that's true, then why would Christians die as martyrs for their faith, both in the past and even now today? And there's certainly no room to tell Jesus with our postmodernist, no absolute true thought, well, that's all fine, well and fine for you, but it's just not my truth. And here's why. No other religion or religious leader has laid down their godliness as something that they could use for his own gain, like Jesus did. The Apostle Paul writes, But instead, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 42% of the world's population are unreached with the good news and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This means there's likely no church for them to gather together with, like we're doing right now, no Bible translated into their heart language to deeply understand, no pastors or teachers to help them understand the complicated but beautiful truth 
that they are sinners, but they are not without hope, and that that hope is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A couple weeks ago in his sermon, Joel talked about the good shepherd and the sheep that he wanted to gather that were not currently a part of the fold. Folks, that's the Great Commission. The good shepherd wants us to join him in gathering sheep back into his fold. And there's no other way for the lost sheep to get there than Jesus Christ himself. And because we don't have Jesus now, but he gave us the Holy Spirit and the Great Commission, the only way for the lost sheep to hear about Jesus is if someone goes and tells them about him. So what we've seen so far is that the heart of God is for his people to know him and love him, all nations. And we've seen that the Great Commission is an invitation for all Christians to be a part of making that happen. But maybe you're thinking, so what, Andrea? I am not about to upplant my entire life, uproot my entire life, and move across the world, navigate a new culture, learn a new language, and try to preach the gospel in hostile places. I'm just not called to be a missionary. And my answer is, yeah, you're probably right. I mean, if you do feel called, I'm definitely not discouraging you from going. Um, I would love to have you come join my team, so let's talk about it. But even if you're not called to be a missionary and do the going part of the Great Commission, remember that the going was not the main verb, but the making of disciples. So you're still definitely invited to the work of the Great Commission, and there's lots that you can do. The first thing I'd ask all of us to do, and I'm not really the one asking, Jesus asks us to do this, is to pray. Jesus tells us to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his field. And so pray for missionaries to be sent out. Pray for more people to catch this vision of God's heart for the nations and to want to respond by going somewhere and telling people about Jesus and all that he's commanded us to do. Pray for missionaries who are preparing to be sent out, for those who are already on the field, and especially pray for the people groups that they are working with. There's over 7,000 to choose from, so there's lots of prayer to be done. You can also pray for the governments of the countries where missionaries live and serve because we do serve in some really hostile places. So you can pray that the governments would ease restrictions, open doors, and that even government leaders would be brought into the fold of Jesus. And especially, I think my mom would appreciate me saying, pray for the missionaries' families who are far away from them when they stay home in the passport country and their loved ones go away. It's really hard and scary, and I know that their families would appreciate your prayers. A second act you can do is to send. Sending often and most likely will include some sort of generosity through financial partnership because, believe it or not, there aren't Fortune 500 companies paying missionaries to go out and do this kind of work, Um, but it does take money to to live and exist. I think we all know that. Um, So if you have the means, you can be generous through financial partnership with missionaries and their ministries. But sending can also look like actually reading the missionary newsletters and updates that they send out. So when they hit your inbox, don't just like scroll through it and like, click red to get rid of the little notification. I do that sometimes with like uh, subscription emails or like ads and stuff. But don't do that with missionary letters. Actually read, find out what is going on in their part of the world. What's the ministry that they're doing um, and how you could be involved. And then take it a step further and actually respond to them. It can be a really quick note to just say, hey, got your update, thinking of you, so glad to hear things are going well or "We're, we're gonna be praying for you. Let us know if there's anything specific. You can also literally send care packages or even go visit the missionaries that you know on the field and be a source of encouragement for them. Sending also includes helping the local church to keep missions as a priority both in the budget and from the pulpit. 
So you can talk to people at your church and make sure that they're aware of the missionaries you're currently partnering with and the importance of the Great Commission in general. And then a third option that literally right here in the Twin Cities, we are all in a prime position to do is welcome. Minnesota Compass is a research group that compiles demographic data from sources like the census and other kind of public surveys. And they say that there are 472,000 foreign-born Minnesotans. That's 8% of our state's population. And I'm willing to bet that some of those 472,000 foreign-born Minnesotans are your neighbors or your coworkers or your classmates or your friends. That's a lot of ethne for us to connect with. The peoples have been brought to our front yards and all we have to do is welcome them in. So you can share a meal with them. Just be curious and ask questions. Invite them into your life. You can invite them to something like the picnic we're having this afternoon at Como Park so that they can be around the people of God and get a sense that God loves them and God loves his people too. So we're coming to the close and we're going to enter soon into a time of communion and worship through song. As we take the bread and the juice and we remember what Jesus has done for us, I'd like to also invite you to remember that God is a missionary God and to remember the cultural barrier that he crossed and the mission that he came to complete when he left, in, when he left heaven and came to earth. I'll close with this thought from C.S. Lewis, that Jesus is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. C.S. Lewis basically said, once you know about Jesus, you have to take some sort of stand because the claims that he makes about himself and us and the world are all way too grand to, for us to write off as meaningless. So either he is who he says he is, and you take him at his word and at his every word and call him Lord and Savior, or he is an evil and deceitful and maniacal liar that has been duping humanity for ages for his own selfish gain, or he's a lunatic and everything he said is basically nuts. But I say that nothing Jesus said or did contradicts the truth of the word of God. He is who he says he is. He did what he was sent to do, and all those who follow him have been invited to accept him at his word, to accept his invitation and authority to join him on his mission, to be one with him and one with God and one with each other, so that someday we will gather around his throne and sing in one voice with every language, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So let's pray. God, I thank you that you are a missionary God. I thank you that you did not leave us to our own devices, unable to save ourselves, but that you chose grace and mercy and have brought us into your fold. Lord of the harvest, we pray for workers to be sent out into the field. We pray for the ethne that don't yet know you and ask that you would prepare people who are gifted in cross-cultural communication and language learning and preaching and teaching to be sent to bring them the good news of Jesus. And Lord, we ask that you would help your church to know your heart for the nations and that you would help us to respond in joyful obedience and that all of this would bring you glory. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.